1 through 23. Many of you will be familiar with the beginning of the book of Daniel, how Daniel and some friends of his and many others from the Holy Land were taken into captivity. And Daniel, because of the blessing of God and his faithfulness in response to that blessing, um, he, he flourished in, in captivity. And uh, we come to it in chapter 9, where um, God is, is uh, they're approaching the end of the 70 years of captivity. And um, this is about what's going on with Daniel at that time. You'll see it, I'm pretty sure, as I begin to read. Let's pray and ask God to help us to understand his word. Father God, uh, thank you for the spiritual food that is set before us. Uh, We confess to you that without the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit that inspired these words, we will not be able to understand them. We will not be able to apply them. We will not be able to be transformed by them. And so we pray for that teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you would touch my mouth and every ear, Uh, And that we would understand to the depths of our souls and be conformed into the image of Christ. Lord, if there's some here that don't know you yet, I pray that you would touch them. That you would give them that which they cannot give themselves. And that is new life in Christ. Lord, uh, use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick like me to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me remind you that we believe that the Bible is the word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And we take it up in Daniel 9 at verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God, And made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes. To our fathers and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, To us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, 
because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his ways, which he set before us by his servants the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such, as, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city, which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter. And understand the vision. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers will fade away. This is God's word. It won't fade away. It will abide forever and forever. I want to begin with a couple of thought experiments. Think along with me, okay? Suppose you are unemployed and told by God you will have a job within two months. Okay? This is a thought experiment. I'm not saying you're going to get words from God about your employment status. Just think. What would you do if you were unemployed and heard you'd have a job within two months? Would you stop sending out resumes 
and working contacts? Would you send out resumes and work your contacts with renewed zeal? Would you continue to pray for a job? Would you stop praying because God had said you're going to have a job within two months? Second thought experiment. Suppose you're terminally ill. You've been told your days are very numbered. You're under the care of a doctor. You're taking medicines and maybe some therapies. And you get a message from God. You will live to be a hundred. What do you do? You check all that apply. Stop going to the doctor and stop taking all the medicines. Discontinue all forms of exercise and join Athletics Anonymous. Pray. Consult a witch doctor. Continue with confidence with the doctor and the medicines and the treatments and prayer. You see, Daniel's situation was very much like both of those. There were problems, obviously, God's people are in exile. Something is promised or revealed in the Word of God. What to do? What to do? I want us to look carefully at this passage because I think it's extraordinarily relevant for all Christians, especially for those of us in the Reformed tradition. Now, I'm going to look through the passage, but I want you to note that there's a stark contrast all through the passage between God's faithfulness and Israel's failure. It just over and over. As a matter of fact, some of you probably thought as I was reading that long passage, didn't he just say that? I mean, and, and he did. It comes over and over through the passage. God is faithful. We have failed. Okay. But the covenantal basis of the prayer is there as well. That these, Daniel's praying, Lord, these are your people. They're called by your name. You saved them out of Egypt. You have put your name upon them. That's all through that. And notice also how Daniel prays as a representative of the people. It's not so much personal and individual as he is praying for the, for the, 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 the nation and for the kingdom. And the first thing I want you to note in verses 1 through 3 of this passage is that Daniel's prayer grew out his study of the books, the books. In verse 2, it tells us he studied the books. And here the books are the prophecies, particularly of Jeremiah, the prophet. Now, Daniel has been in captivity for close to 70 years, we think. He's been away, and he came away as a child. So he's been here a long time, and he's continuing to study the books. No doubt there were many in that captivity, many Jews in that captivity, who had not continued to study the books. Perhaps they're bummed out at God. Well, why are we in captivity? What good is this God? Or maybe they are not... um, um, continuing to study the books because they've grown cold spiritually or because they've flourished and become comfortable and wealthy in the exile. Many of the Jews did. God had told them uh, to, to, uh, to, to do that, to plant gardens and build homes, and they'd be there a while, and some of them, some of them no doubt flourished. Daniel could have struggled with all of that, 
Because he had been blessed in exile, he, I think, had had everything he needed. But as we shall see, even though he's flourished in exile, his heart is in Jerusalem. His heart is in the land of God. His heart is for the glory of God, in the people of God, in the place of God. No doubt about it. And notice that these books of Jeremiah reveal a promise. The desolations are going to end in 70 years. Jeremiah 25, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Jeremiah 29, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That's what Daniel is reading. The 70 years are going to end and God is going to take us back. And God's promise stimulates him to prayer. He doesn't become what we call quietistic. He doesn't become fatalistic. He doesn't just say, well, God's promised we're going back. Let's go play a round of golf and he'll take us home at the end of the 70 years. What happens is that prayer is stimulated. Let me ask you this. If you'd been in that situation, you believe the Bible, you believe God's word, you read Jeremiah, it's, it's been 70 years. It's coming up on 70 years. You know the promise is 70 years. You know when you got here. What do you do? Are you going to pray like Jeremiah? Are you going to check out and say, well, surely well, we're going to go back? Don't worry. No worries. Some lessons here, please. We should study the scriptures even into old age. We need to read and reread and reread. And the reason we do is not because the scriptures change. They don't change. In other words, what's there is what's there. But friends, you change. You change. I change. We change by age, we change by health, we change by employment, we change in so many different ways. Suppose you're reading a certain psalm one day, and you've just gotten a raise at work. And then suppose you read the same psalm two weeks later and you've lost your job. Are you going to read it the same way? No, you're not. Because we change, and so you need to go back to the Bible and back to the Bible and back to the Bible. You won't wear it out, friends. And that's what... We learn, at least in part. And secondly, we learn that we're not to be so comfortable as aliens and strangers in exile. Remember, Peter wrote to those who were exiles and strangers in the earth. That's what we are. We're not to be so comfortable as aliens and strangers in this world that we don't long for the fulfillment of the promises. We don't long for the promised land. We don't long... For the future. Study the books, even into old age, and study them with an eye to the kingdom. Study them with an eye to the flourishing of the church. Know that the desolations of this life are limited, thank God. Amen. So Daniel prayer, Daniel's prayer grows out of his study of the books of, of, of the Old Testament, particularly Jeremiah. Secondly, I want you to notice that Daniel's prayer is 
passionate. It's passionate. You can feel the passion pulsating throughout the prayer. He pleads with God. Verse 3 and verse 17, it says, please for mercy. He turned his face toward the Lord in verse 3. Gently, but directly, I want to say, what do we in the Reformed community know of pleading with God? If I was back in my congregation in Alabama, I would say, what do we Presbyterians know about pleading? It'd be a little more euphonic, maybe, okay? But do Reformed people plead? Do we think somehow it's, it's inappropriate to plead with God? He's pleading for mercy, not justice. He's saying, Lord, don't give us what we deserve. Give us mercy. He fasted, which is a form of self-denial, which, which makes time for prayer and shows his eagerness to God. If, if I was preaching on fasting, you know what I would say? I would say, fast from electronic stuff. TV, your phone. It'd change your life, at least for a while. Some of you younger people might think, my life would end. No, it wouldn't end. It wouldn't end. It might begin. That which is life indeed. He wears sackcloth and ashes. These are symbols of humbling and mourning and repentance. And he does not let the plan and purpose of God cool his zeal. To the contrary, the plan and purpose of God, the end of the 70 years, stimulate his zeal and stimulate his prayer. He might have reasoned, God has promised this, that settles it, I'll just wait and do nothing. But he didn't. And I think he shows us a better way of praying passionately that the promises of God will come. And we should do that. So God has promised that every one of you who knows Jesus Christ will someday be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This is the will of God for you in Thessalonians, your sanctification. You can be sure of it. You don't know what job he wants you to have in two years, for sure. But you do know he wants you to be sanctified. You do know that he wants his glory in the earth. You do know that he wants his church to flourish. You do know that he wants the gospel to spread to the othermost parts of the earth, as the brother prayed earlier. We know Jesus is coming back. Can we plead for that? So he, he prays based on the books. He prays passionately. Thirdly, Daniel's prayer has confession as a major element. Now, con- I want to be clear. Confession is not the basis of why God is going to bless them. It's not, well, they repented enough or, or Daniel uh, repented enough, and therefore God says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll restore you people. But I think it's a necessary part of their going back to the promised land that they would be humbled. The basis is God's righteousness and his mercy in Christ. Uh, throughout the prayer, uh, Daniel says in various places, in various way, is ways, Israel has no righteousness in verse 18. We're in exile because of our sin in verses 12 and 16. Um, 
We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled in verse 5. We have not listened to you in verse 6. Over and over and over. I mean, just over throughout the prayer, he's confessing there. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name. Do you listen to God? I mean, really listen? I'm not asking if you read the Bible. I'm asking you if you listen. Listen with the eyes of your heart. Daniel's saying that up to this time they've not prayed or repented in verse 13 at the end. He says, look, we've transgressed your law. We've turned aside from you. We've refused to obey you. And so I want to suggest as we learn from the Lord's Prayer, we learn from this prayer and the structure of your worship service, that confession is a, is a significant element of what should be in our prayers. And so we should ask ourselves, is that true of our prayers? And then let me ask this question. What will it take to be honest with God in confession? What will it take? Well, it may take several things, but the most fundamental thing it will take is faith in Jesus Christ. Here's why. No one will be honest with God about their sin who does not have Jesus as their Savior. I'm not saying non-Christians can't say they've done things wrong, but they will not see their sin as sin before an awesomely holy God unless they have the shelter of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, Daniel's prayer was rooted in the covenant relationship that existed between God and Israel. He uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, or Lord, seven times in the passage, talks about him as the faithful covenantal God, the great and awesome God who saves out of Egypt, who cares and brings people to himself. He is the promise-keeping God in verses 11 and 12 and 13, bringing blessings or cursings in accordance with his word. But he's remembered even after all this, and some of us need to hear this very carefully this morning, he's remembered after all all the sins he's confessed and confessing for the nation that God is still merciful and forgiving. He might have gone into this prayer and some people, pastorally I've run into this for a long, long time. Um, You'll you'll run in, you'll be in some pastoral situation and somebody will have, have, have... as we say colloquially, gotten in a deep ditch. You know what I mean? They will have really blown it in a, in, in, in a very significant way. And they'll, they'll withdraw from God and they'll say, my sins are too bad. My sins are too bad. As a matter of fact, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an illustration of the, the, the two falsities people say. There's one group of people that says, I'm so, I'm so good, I don't need Jesus. And the other group says, I'm so bad Jesus wouldn't have me. And they're both wrong. And, you know, he might have said, after all this stuff he said about what they did wrong, he might have said, well, surely, God, you don't want to have anything to do with us. Some of you probably said that. I've blown it so badly, surely I've, I've, I've exceeded the limits of your grace, Lord. My credit card is over the limit, and now you're going to put me in the slammer, Right? And you treat the gospel as if it's parole, not pardon. 
But the gospel is pardon, not parole. Some of you should meditate on that sometime. Do, do I think of the gospel? Do I think of, of, of the, what Jesus did for me as, as, as parole? So if, if I get out of line, he's just going to slam me back, put me back in the slammer. He could have done that. He might have thought, well, God, look at all the stuff we've done. Look how recalcitrant we've been. Look how stubborn we've been. Look how disobedient we've been. Look how sinful we've been. Well, we just exceeded the, the, limit, the credit limit. We'll just be here forever. No. His faith, his understanding of the gospel is greater than that. He remembers God as merciful and forgiving and righteous. He doesn't blame God for Israel's situation. And I would say we need to pray conscious of the covenant connection that exists between God and his people. That God is faithful to his word and that he is for his people. He is for his people. How many of you could say in your heart of hearts, God wants me to flourish as a believer in Jesus Christ? I would say, I don't know what percentages to put on this, but the vast, vast number of people that I've dealt with pastorally over the years, their attitude would be, she'd say, are you one of Jesus' sheep? Yeah, I am. But you know there are black sheep in every family, and I'm one of them. I'm one of them. That's who I am. There, there are some good sheep in this, fam- in this family, but I'm not one of the good sheep. I'm one of the bad sheep. <laughs> Don't believe the lies of the devil, dear friends. Okay? They might have thought that. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. In this context of their unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness, you can't help but think of Jesus Christ, can you? The one who kept covenant for those who haven't kept it. Fifthly, Daniel's prayer is firmly focused on the glory of God. I think that's pretty clear. God made a name for himself internationally when he delivered Israel from Egypt. God set his name on them such that Jerusalem is called his city set on a hill. When God's people, Israel, and his place, Jerusalem, were made desolate desolate and became a byword among the pagan nations, God was dishonored. It's the same for the church today. And so Daniel asked, like in verses 17 and 19, that God would act for his own name's sake. And my last point, very briefly, is God, Daniel's prayer contained petition. He didn't just say, God, do what you want to do. He petitioned God that he would forgive them and restore them. So I've got a, a longer conclusion, so relax. I'm going to get to the end. But there's an important point to be made for us in the Reformed community. I've said we need to read and study God's word all our life, even when we are in exile, even when we are old. We need to base our prayers on God's revealed will, And his promises. And we need not to make prayer, listen carefully, that that prayer is about a guessing game about God's hidden will. Many people in the Reformed community make prayer a guessing game about God's hidden will. You know, there's God's revealed will. That's what he says in his word. There's God's hidden will. That's his providence that unfolds. 
day by day and week by week. Let me explain it this way. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, when it says, what is prayer? It says, prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. And so people pray, Lord, if it is your will, heal him. Or if it is is your will, give him a job. And there are many instances when people, I'm not saying all, I'm not saying it's bad language to use. As a matter of fact, Jesus used it or, or an equivalent of it. But many times that language is a guess about, well, Lord, I don't know what your hidden will is. But if, it, if this is part of your hidden will, then do that. Friend, if it is part of his hidden will, he will do it. Prayers are not, not about guessing about his hidden will. It's about praying in accordance, pleading in, in accordance with his revealed will. Suppose you happen to be an exile and an alien in a strange land, and friends, we are. Suppose you're told that Jesus will return to receive you someday. Suppose that God tells you that he will conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. Suppose that God promises to take care of you and supply your needs. Suppose God says that nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. How do you respond? Do you passionately plead with God for those promises to become reality? Or do you fatalistically do nothing so that God can do his thing? Hyper-Calvinism can express itself in more than one way. The well-known way that hyper-Calvinism expresses itself is that God is sovereign in salvation and we don't and shouldn't, some versions, need to do evangelism. That's the well-known version. I've never run into a card-carrying hyper-Calvinist. I hope I never do, I suppose, unless I get a chance to show him a better way. The less well-known version of hyper-Calvinism is this. God has a sovereign plan, so passionate pleading with him is out of place. God has a sovereign plan, so passionate pleading with him is out of place. Friends, we believe in divine sovereignty, but we also believe in human responsibility. In in, uh, 2 Kings, King Hezekiah is told in verse 20, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus said the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. So Hezekiah says to his wife, call the lawyer, let's have our will reviewed. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, and surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up from the ha- to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days 15 years. 
No, I'm not telling you that everybody that prays the way Hezekiah prayed is going to get an extra 15 years. That'd be foolish and be untrue. Isaiah had a little more direct connection to God than I do. But I think he did what he should have done. He had Isaiah the prophet telling him, get your house in order, you're going to die. And he pled with God. He pled with God. Jesus, in Gethsemane, knows why he's been born. Knows that he came to die. Knows that he came to redeem a people for his father. Knows that he's lived a perfect life resisting every temptation so that he could die as the perfect Lamb of God. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. So passionate that blood came out of his forehead. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. According to the Bible, we have reason to believe that things may be different if we pray than if we don't. And you're saying, well, now, Alan, are you saying that prayer changes things in a fundamental way? Well, no, if what you mean is does it change the decree of God? Of course not. But we don't know the decree of God. We don't have access to the decree of God in, a, in an independent way. And we have personal relationship with the Lord of glory. I mean, one of the things we've, we've sung already and another one we're going to sing, Lord, you heard my prayer. Isn't that amazing? Do you, are you amazed by the fact that you as a creature, God, hears your prayer? The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. So let us pray scripturally, passionately, persistently, repentantly, humbly for the fame of the name of our glorious God. Let it once again be said that those who are reformed know how to plead with God. According to the scriptures, let us pray. Lord our God. Lord our God, teach us to plead with you. Teach us to pray the promises as Daniel did. Teach us to pray with passion and hope and expectation. Teach us to pray in spite of our sinfulness and thinking that you wouldn't hear people like us. We do believe in the priesthood of all believers. And Lord, hear us for we pray through Christ. Amen.